This is Coda Radio, episode 493 for November 21st, 2022. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the whole world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week with his U22 cranked to the max, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Roger that. Hope everything's plugged in this time. Are you in a new location right now? I am not yet. Uh, so we have the internet being rehooked up on Wednesday. Oh. So that means next Monday's coder will be the first official um, Plant City Coder Radio in years. That's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. That, that, feels, that feels like uh, almost going back to the way things were for a moment. We'll see about that, though. We'll see. Now, so now you have me worried about the HVAC system. I know. <laughs> okay. After your comments, last week, I'm like, oh, shit, is it really loud? Like, uh. Yeah, you know, it's always tricky when you, especially in empty office space, because there's nothing there. What you need is to just load a ton of junk in there. That'll cut down on the sound reflection. Works great for podcasting. <laughs> just get like, uh, what are the A cartons? Yeah. Yeah, that'll work too. And, and movers blankets, actually. That's the real trick. Just blankets and pillows. I had to do an Airbnb recording one time and it, there was like six or seven bedrooms. It was a big Airbnb because, you know, most of the team was down there. And so we just literally took blankets and sheets and the mattresses and the pillows out of every single room and stuffed them all into the dining room and made like a cave for recording in there. It worked pretty well, actually. The only issue was then you had to put it all back and remember where everything went. And that we weren't so good at. <laughs> so I think some people got the wrong bet. I've been playing around with stable diffusion to just generate the thumbnails for our Jupiter tube streaming server. And if you go over there, you can see some of them. And I don't think I've mentioned it to you, but I've been using this app called diffusion B that just runs on the uh, M one or M two max. And it uses the neural processors to do the generation. You need some Ram, but the results that this thing can produce are just mind blowing. And, uh, I finally feel like I have a reason to have a a MacBook with the Mac CPU in there and all the RAM because this app will use, you know, 35 gigs of RAM. Uh, you know, it has 8 gig and 10 gig models that it's loading in there. It will use all of the neural coprocessors, co whatever they call that. It'll use some CPU, some GPU. But it's really impressive because I can sit there and I can crank out these images pretty much all day. I'll just sit there and run batches until I get a good one that I can use for a live stream. And uh, I still go about using that MacBook with three monitors attached, uh, multiple virtual desktops on each monitor, probably four Chromium-based applications and five Firefox windows and six terminals and a VM, all the chat apps. And I still can go around cranking things out on that. It's really pretty remarkable. If you haven't checked out Diffusion B at diffusionb.com, I will put a link in the notes because this app, it's open source, it's free, and it is, it is a lot of fun if you've got one of these uh, M1 or M2 systems. I guess they also make an Intel version, which is kind of new, and I have no idea how that works. Have you played around with any of these AI image generators or deep fusion stuff? Not really, no. I, I did one web-based one, but it's not the same thing, I don't think. I, of course, I've seen some of the press coverage of it. It's 
um, kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah, I made a really creepy one for today's live stream. Oh God, it's uh, it's SBF as the Joker. Is that what I saw on Twitter? Yeah, that's that that's SBF. That I had the. I, I legit just thought that was the Joker. <laughs> it kind of is really because there's more pictures of the Joker, but it's kind of one and the same. Than SBF. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, it's fun, man. You can just do it, and they have a little link in the app to bring up like community ideas, so you can see the prompts people use and play with that and tweak the look of it. And you can really produce some cool stuff. So uh, let's get into the feedback because we got an email along those names. I don't, I guess I didn't grab their name somehow. How did I, how did I mess that up? But uh, we had a listener write in that said, uh, Hey guys, long time listener, join the party. And I'm also a PHP dev. Sorry, Mike. Mm, you should be. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't grab your name listener. Uh, they write, as we seem to be witnessing the rise of AI being available to the masses. I'm curious what you see as the opportunity as us developers to put it into our products. I'm not talking about developer tools like Copilot, but more like what AI-driven features will our customers want to see. I'd actually kind of written this off as a toy until Chris mentioned that they use AI to generate the video thumbnails. It got me thinking that someday you could have something like a software as a service that could generate your course image for you as part of a feature. Curious what your thoughts are on real-world software implications of this technology. Cheers. I think in the foreseeable future, it's going to be a lot of um, things like AI error correction. I, again, I tend to think about the enterprise space for a lot of like financial type analysis, stuff like that. There are codified rules that unless you're, I don't know, in the Bahamas or happen to work for Enron, uh, there's just not that much creativity right, in doing a balance sheet, except for one or two. It's totally reasonable that some AI system could, as part of the program, right? Like I'm thinking when eventually Intuit gets screwed by the government because they decide that they can just file people's taxes for them and has to find a way to sell their products, this would be the value add, right? Like if you own a small business where your taxes are a little more complicated. Right. The built-in QuickBooks auditor. Right. They basically stop you from making silly mistakes. Yeah. And those those could be things like, I don't know, have you ever transposed a number on a form by accident, right? And then you get the letter from the IRS like, what? We don't think so, buddy. It's almost like next generation spell check, only now it's checking your numbers. Yes, I'm super spell check. Yeah, super spell check. We should title suggestion. I could see that. Yeah, totally. Right. I could see like if you know anybody who works in retail, they will tell you that or even hospitality managers can be capricious and frankly stupid when making people schedules. There's absolutely no reason that can't be a self-service AI system running that and Amazon does this a bit, but they do it uh, in a way to very aggressively like screw over their employees. I could totally see like a, a restaurant focused system or a bar focused system that was like, listen, we'll manage your floor. We already see things where AI can automatically call. Uh, I forgot the name of the Google thing, but they can call and make like reservations. Well, why can't you have AI call and say, oh, you know, um, John is uh, canceling out me, so we're going to call Jim to be the bartender today, or just another spiff, another riff on this doctor's office, right? How much time does the uh, quote unquote proverbial lady at the front of your doctor's office take calling every single appointment your doctor has? I know my doctor, her assistant is constantly on the phone. Uh, why can't that be an AI system that says, uh, you know, we're calling, we got an answer. They can understand basic language, right? Yes, no, confirm. Or it could even be a touchstone thing, you know, a text message, type one to confirm your appointment. That'd be great. Probably not going to happen now that Amazon is gutting their Alexa division. Cancel. <laughs> but 
I've my my soapbox, and I think you're talking to it. You're speaking to it right now, man. Has always been these smart speakers, these supposed assistants, will be useful when my assistant can contact your assistant and we can schedule something. No, ca- when Calendry is dead, because people have lady cylinders and these lady cylinders can auto schedule between each other using some kind of AI. I'd love to see that. I think that'd be so useful. I've wanted that for years. They don't do oh, it. Oh yeah, just scheduling. I mean, I, I, how about the? Shit? I never show up anyway, but the shit we have to go through to schedule events. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just when we were trying to get the coderly sorted. I mean, that was my fault last time, but you know, <laughs> just yeah, but the two times before it was mine. So it, it, it lets the right. If if our lady bots could just be like, hey, Mike says he's free, but I know for a fact he's not because he has this, you know, demo he has to do. Or his kid has a doctor's appointment, whatever the reason happens to be. Well, and again, this is where like having my data, like if Google had my data, like my location information, and they knew my route from like, you know, the, the dropping off the kid to home, and they knew I'm 35 minutes out and I have a meeting starting in 10 minutes, they could have figured that out. And they could even send you a push notification first saying, hey, would you like to notify Chris you're going to be 35 minutes late? Or would you like to reschedule? You know, and then the, our assistants would communicate with each other, update my calendar. It'd be simple. And they have all the data and they have all the resources, but we just haven't connected the pieces. And you know, they'll talk about this as AI. I think you could also see it integrated into something like WordPress or blogging platforms or something like PeerTube. When you're doing your post, you could just maybe even from the description, maybe it reads the article. I don't know, but it could generate imagery for you because I think stock imagery that's AI generated is going to be very popular and Shutterstock and others are already getting in on this game. I mean, that's what I'm using it for. I'm generating what is essentially stock imagery, but I'm just doing it for our peer tube instance. Cause I just have a really low key approach to managing our peer tube setup. And for me, just generating a unique AI image that maybe kind of implies what the show's about, but sometimes doesn't good enough. I just need an image there. Yep. I, uh, I briefly used, I forget the name of the platform, but an AI service to do, uh, before I started using my own account for everything, the Madbotter accounts, Twitter crap, right? Like the, uh, you know, the jokes, the memes, whatever, to try to drum up followership back when that was e- easier, I would say. It was good, like 90% of the time. Every once in a while, it would get confused and like tweet the same thing twice. But it was pretty good, right? It would find like, I, the keywords I had were like Star Wars and PH Burden Python, right? Or Star Wars and Ruby. And some of them I did by hand, like I created a library by hand for it to fall back on. But it's it was good for the ten bucks a month I paid for it. Yeah, the more I think about this, the more I think I'll use it as a tool myself. Yeah, I just used it recently because I want to rename Office Hours, and if I rename it, I have I have to come up with new album art. And trying to communicate, especially when there's a language barrier, concepts when I don't really have a really sound idea myself. Um, just not was not working. I just wasn't making any progress. And this is actually why I was cranking through a ton of images recently with Diffusion B. Is I was just riffing on different ideas of trying to create album art of for for the new for the rename of Office Hours. And you know, it took me a couple of hours of tweaking it as a sort of a secondary thing I was doing while I waited on other things. And um, it, it got us there. It's not what we're going to use. But it got me a concept that we could then communicate to the artist of kind of what we're going for. And that was huge for me because I was really struggling for days trying to communicate with this individual. And then, you know, after one afternoon, I had an image that 
really conveyed my whole idea. And then they're going to come back, ideally, with something that's professional and actually usable. We'll see. And I could see, like, just that kind of stuff. You know, even ideas of, like, housing property, like, like you know, pre-rendering what something might look like or a UI, what it might look like. Who knows? All right, now get ready for this one. This is, I think, an El Spiso take. And I, I don't know why I was bad at grabbing names this week. I'll try to do better at that, guys. I apologize. But we got an email in, and it was about uh, Gnome and getting a Mac. This is quite the journey. He says, hey, Chris and Mike, as part of the perpetual... <laughs> I love this. It is true. As part of the perpetual Apple arm saga, today I have a story for you. Stay a while and listen. I've been a Linux user for 12 years at this point, originally switched from using macOS. And as Mike does, I too have fond memories of Snow Leopard. Anyway, I got a new job and they're giving us M2 MacBook Pros. I was kind of afraid of this new Apple platform. I was afraid it could really be a problem for desktop Linux adoption too. But since getting my hands on this Mac, all my fears are gone. macOS is a train wreck. He says it's a train wreck of usability, and overall, it's a UX nightmare. Everything is out of place, and things you'd expect to behave in a certain way do a completely different thing. I bet he's thinking of Maximize. I could go on about everything the Mac does wrong, but I'll go with this one. Mission control is useless. It doesn't show minimized windows. I'm happy to acknowledge that to this day, GNOME represents the pinnacle of desktop UI and UX across the board. And proprietary platforms like macOS and Windows don't even come close. I don't think we'll see any longtime Linux users switch to a Mac anytime soon. That said, the M2 performance is actually quite decent, and it made me wish for a proper ARM Linux laptop. Oh, and Fedora runs great inside UTM, by the way. UTM is the free uh, virtualization software on macOS that I think uses the built-in hypervisor. Not as good as Parallels, but quite good. My personal opinion. The pinnacle of desktop UI is GNOME. I got to sit with that one for a moment. I think you're right. Yep, I think you're right. I think GNOME is better designed than macOS and Windows by a, by a wide margin. Um, in fact, GNOME 43 is a real gem. And I have no problems now putting it down in front of family members and having them work with it. That's my hot take. I'm sure Mike completely agrees. I think it's pretty good, right? Uh, I will say, switching back and forth all the time now, I find GNOME slash Cosmic to be much snappier overall. There's a lot of weirdness in Mac. I think part of that is they... I sort of feel like Apple doesn't know what they want to do with it. You know what I mean? They're they're struggling to find that where does iPad OS and Mac begin? Yeah. Have you tried Stage Manager in Ventura at all on the Mac? I have not downloaded Ventura. Ah, I just upgraded my MacBook to Ventura mm. last week. And, you know, to Apple's credit, the upgrade went so dang smooth that it just seemed like a lot of long reboots. And then everything came back. All my apps work. All, everything's in the same spot. All my All my settings remain the same. So in that way, it's nice because that's really what you want on an update like that. I, tr I turned on mission. No, not mission control. I'm sorry. Uh, stage manager for a hot minute just to see what that's like. And that is so ridiculous on large screen Macs. It's so stupid. I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, to me, it's a sign that they have no idea what to do with the Mac and that the Mac might have great hardware right now, but the software side is doomed. It was ridiculous 
ridiculous. I could, I'd like to try it on an iPad. Say you have like a 27 inch wide monitor or larger. I do. You can only have one window on that entire screen. Yeah, that's, that doesn't make a ton of sense. It's silly. It's so silly. And then you try to combine it with the like other window manager features, which are lacking. And it's uh, what I would have loved for stage manager to be is basically baby's first window tiling. And you could just turn on baby's first window tiling, the Fisher price window tiling on the space or whatever they call it, but the virtual desktop that you want it on. And then you could have all your other virtual desktops, like regular Mac windows, like they've been since the eighties. But on one of your desktops or on one of your monitors, spaces or whatever they call it, that one would essentially auto-tile whatever you put on there. And Stage Manager would let you flow through those somehow real easily. I don't know what it would do. Maybe you collect windows. I don't know. That is not what it is. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, so I, I just haven't upgraded for the very lame reason of when I upgrade Mac OS, it tends to break my Xcode install and home Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it does. I do think you'll have to, you know, do the rigmarole there so right now i mainly use this imac pro for um ios swifty stuff and uh it's really a very pretty build machine in a lot of ways i i wait i wait till the absolute have to for my work macs i have one work mac and i have that that laptop is like i decided to go for it this time because i wanted to see if there was something worth talking about on coder and i did it and I never brought it up until now because <laughs> I just didn't. There was just nothing, right? And I was like, uh, all right. There's a, yeah, it's not that. Different. And I don't, I don't use Xcode, but if I did, I, I also would wait. I just one thing you mentioned tiling on the Mac. It's five bucks, but it's really good. The Magnet app, which has all kinds of tiling features, and it's what I use on my Macs. You know, I do have Magnet. I just never use the tiling stuff. I should try that. You should try it once you learn the keyboard shortcuts. It's it's really slick. But again, it's, you know, it's something that you could tell it's not built into the OS, right? Like every once in a while, you'll get a little, ooh, that was, you know, that was a little spicy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would totally be down for that if I could also buy Magnet and install it on the Linux desktop. Quick recap. I have three kids and they each have laptops running Linux. And my daughters run elementary OS just because they're older installs based on 1804. So it's a pretty old original elementary. And then my son's on Fedora. Because he has a newer gaming laptop that needed a newer kernel for the NVIDIA stuff and all the other crap that's in his machine. 1804-based systems don't even boot on it. And uh, it has steadily been falling apart on me. And it, it's kind of been an interesting examination of the Linux desktop on modern hardware where I told him to go ahead and install all the updates. And he has like a copper repository for Java. And that's about it. But even in that just sort of fairly vanilla setup with that exception of that one copper repository over time is installed has just been falling apart it uh, doesn't sleep anymore when you close the lid it's constantly got processes pegging one of the cores um, it won't actually it'll hang it shut down now and no matter what i do aside from just a new compave i cannot get the nvidia driver to work in his install it just sag faults at boot for some reason doesn't do this on other distros it wasn't doing this for months and all of a sudden, his NVIDIA driver literally crashes at boot, and then the system falls back to the open source driver. And it's just completely unacceptable. Um, I mean, I love the Fedora project, but I just, I'm not going to use this as a family system. Maybe it'll still be one of my favorite desktops, but I don't think it's going to work for my kids. And I've been trying to think about what to do here. And listener Chris wrote in, this is our last email today. He says, hey, Mike and Chris, longtime listener, first time caller. 
I completely agree with everything Chris has been talking about with Nick's OS, and I'm fully on the bandwagon as a few months ago. What I didn't expect, however, was for my mother in her early 60s to find GNOME on Nix to be intuitive and easier to use than Windows. I work for an MSP, and there was an older HP Elite book in the recycle pile from a company that is one of our clients. So I was able to repurpose it with Nix for myself. And when my mom needed a new machine, I thought to myself, well, the next laptop with a ton of I.O. would be amazing. So I thought, let's try it. Next on my list now is to be an ex- experimenting with podcasting 2.0 and send some sats your way next time. Well, thank you, Chris. Love all the shows. Appreciate the work you do for the community. Here's what I'm thinking with Nix OS. You, you can build a really lean, mean, purpose-built machine, and it could just be a static base OS that maybe dad upgrades. I come in there every couple of months even. Maybe I don't touch it for three months at a time. And I, I build the base OS for them. And they just install everything through flat packs and essentially run it as an immutable system. And I don't know, but I, that might be the direction I might go for like uh, my OBS machine too. This might become like my new setup is kind of this immutable setup that supports rollbacks and the base system can be pretty consistent, especially if you use something like the LTS kernel. I'm not installing updates constantly via the base package manager. I'm mostly updating the user land via flat pack, which means the libraries are self-contained, frameworks are self-contained, the binary is self-contained, it's independent of the base OS. It's kind of like the, the idea that you do for a lot of container-based workloads where you have a bare OS and then you run everything in containers. Only in this scenario for desktops, the flat pack is the container instead of, instead of something like Docker. And I think with Linux, you could get near damn bulletproof with this. As long as your hardware is solid and you've got drivers for everything, if you do something like a silver blue or a NixOS immutable base, and then you roll your user land applications, this could really be solid. And the nice thing, the reason why I tip towards Nix is because I believe you could come in a month or two later with never touching any updates and just roll it, rebuild it, pull in all the updates, and it won't kick over unless everything passes go. It will do a sanity check on everything. But if something is like incompatible, so say everything technically is fine, it passes checks and it installs, but then there's just some technical incompatibility between applications and a library or, or some made-up scenario. At the Grub menu, you can just go to your last good instance. You just roll back one and you're instantly back in the environment that worked. I just recently had a kernel update that broke my Intel sound card on my ThinkPad. And I thought about trying to fix it. I was like, you know, it's, I don't got time for this. I just rebooted. I went back one revision of my system and my sound card worked. And it was completely clean. Everything was just fine. Man, that's, I think that's the way to go. That's why I'm so hyped about Nix right now. And they have a graphical installer. So you can download a GNOME or Plasma ISO. And you can choose basically any desktop you want. They give you a long list. And it will set up a real basic Nix OS config for you and a basic desktop environment. And I, I do have to warn you, it's a very, very different kind of Linux. It's a totally different kind of file system, totally different way of installing applications. You don't just download binaries and run them or anything like that. But what you get is a totally controllable system that is, a, that is like something you could use as an IoT device as well. Or I think a VPS instance. We have a Nix, our JupyterTube, PeerTube server, is running on a Nix OS server on Linux. So I'm, I'm really, I really feel like this is a good direction for Linux and it really compensates 
for some of the compromises you have to make when using Linux. So I'm very excited, very bullish, as they say on Nick's OS. Uh-oh, careful, Kramer. <laughs> Linode.com slash coder. That's where you go to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and it's a great way to support the show while you're checking out the cloud that has been built for developers and businesses that just don't want the complexities of hyperscalers and don't need their endless options. You want something that is laser-focused, simple, affordable, and accessible to deploy and manage your projects in the cloud. Or maybe it's your customers' projects, or maybe it's just a small site for yourself. Linode does it at a better price and better performance. You know, I was mentioning Diffusion B on my M1. Well, the real experience is actually using one of the many containers that are out there and deploying that deep fusion stuff on a, a Linode GPU rig. Holy smokes, does it just scream. I mean, it is way faster than doing it on the M1 MacBook Ultra or whatever. And, you know, Linode has fantastic customer support. So if you want to put your business infrastructure on there like we do, you're going to be covered there. But maybe you just want to do a gaming system. Maybe you just want to practice running GitLab. Lots of educational opportunities. It's great for that. You get that $100 and you can really kick the tires and build anything you want. They got great performance. They have 11 data centers. Next year, they're going to add another dozen. They are their own ISP, so their connections are super fast. And they have great features like object storage and cloud firewall. Really clear, easy to use backups. A nice, clean API. All of that stuff we use just more and more all the time. That's the stuff that as we've used Linode over the last few years, that's the stuff I've really appreciated. And the performance and the reliability is just so solid there. So go build something, go learn something, and try it for yourself while you support the show. Go to linode.com slash coder, get that $100 in 60-day credit, and support the show. It's linode.com slash coder. All right, we've debated covering this, but we discussed in the coderly, and we kind of came to a conclusion that the story around FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried does have a coder tie-in. In fact, I think you could argue it represents the peak of what we've been talking about since about August when it comes to tech funding, weak leadership that didn't have to pass any kind of actual structural checks, and of course, Web3 scams that we've been talking about, regulation moats, all of it spinning narratives to the media, it all comes together in FTX. And I've noticed you've kind of taken the route of going into the docs. You're like reading the receipts, reading the affidavits. I know you're finding some spicy stuff in there. Yeah, it, well, the problem is it's so spicy that I don't even know where the meat is. It's just spice at this point. So the affidavit from the uh, guy who was taken over to restructure it, i.e. the dude who had to do this for Enron, we talked about this a little last week, but he basically comes out and says, this is worse than Enron. A lot worse. What the hell? Yeah. Then, because I'm a sick puppy, like my barking dogs out there, I decided to read the so-called uh, balance sheet that they put out, FBX put out. First of all, wow. Uh, you know what? Let's just read you the quote. They owe more than $3 billion to their 50 biggest creditors. Well, first of all, they don't know who their top creditors are. Yeah. Which is amazing for someone filing bank. Well, do they? Do they? Now they've said they will reveal them. So there's like, there's a, there's a lot of bullshit going on here, right? Right. There's a lot of misdirection. Where to start? Everything about this is weird. 
right? It's weird that it took so long for them to file this affidavit. Yeah. And the reason given it's just that it was so forked up that this dude couldn't figure out what was going on. This dude whose entire long, you know, 20 something long career doing this is dealing with screwed up, mismanaged, fraudulent companies, right? Including Enron. Again, yes, Enron. Well-known, awesome accounting company. (laughs) You know, super good with their books. All right, so they had a loss in this balance sheet. This is their label. This is what FBX put themselves, not under duress. Hidden, poorly internally labeled fiat currency accounts. That's their that's their balance sheet label for it. Hit poor, poorly hidden fiat accounts or something. No, <laughs> hidden, comma poor, poorly internally labeled fiat currency okay. accounts. Oh god, hidden from whom? First of all, from yourself, which seems to be the answer. Like they didn't know where the accounts were, but they're all apparently in the red. It's only it's not a lot of money. It's only eight billion dollars. Uh, so that's fabulous. That's just great. And some of the the related party transactions regarding Alameda Research, which was owned by F- FSB, controlled at least by FSB. FTX. The FSB is your Russian buddies. Oh, you know what? They would not have messed this up. <laughs> no. I just want to give it to the comrades. They'd be like, yeah, what do you mean you don't know where the account is? We know where everybody's account is. <laughs> it was not the Russian Secret Service. Fair enough. He thought it was okay to dip into customer accounts, effectively deposits, right? Send that money to Alameda Research, his own hedgy fund, right? His little hedge fund-like thing. And go super long, super bullish on crypto. Yeah, really crap, too. Just junk. Everything about that is wrong, right? Everything about that's wrong. It gets worse, when you listen or read some of the transcripts of recent interviews that the that SFB did, very different than, than FSB, SFB. S, so you got SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, and FTX. <laughs> or just Sam. I guess you could just call him Sam. Let's just call him, let's just call him Sammy Burn, Burn the Bennies. That's what we'll call him. <laughs> Sam Bank Fraud. Yeah, Sam Bank Fraud. That's his Jersey Street name. In this interview, he goes... The interviewer asked him, why did you bail out this other, uh, uh, you know, uh, token to- token company? He said, well, what I like to do, and he's just like swinging a big uh, rooster around. What I like to do is I like to wait until they're just about at zero and they're desperate and then I buy them out. You know, and then what happens if you don't do that? The reporter correctly asked. And he says, well, you know, they might like, you know, dump into customer, you know, dip into customer accounts for liquidity or i.e. take their customers' deposits and use them for operations, which is bad. He quickly fumbles on that because turns out at the time he was giving this interview, talking about how much of a baller he was, he was doing exactly the thing that you're not supposed to do. Don't we, we always hear that in these stories, right? That they are, they almost end up, Essentially, it's a form of projection that they're doing. Right. It's 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 just the like you know a lot of people, a lot of journalists, are like going off on the whole weird orgy stuff. I don't give a crap what he does in his bedroom, really. But one, he might get away with this. He may not have committed any actual crimes here, which that's up for many angry, uh, you know, Southern District of New York lawyers to figure out a way to prosecute if they want to. 
And I think we have to remember this is in the Bahamas, right? So yeah, but the money, if the money flew through the U S they, 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 they could still get them. So it's just a complete failure of both basic. You're in junior college, first year remedial business class. And also what the hell was Kleiner doing in this deal? What it's wild because it I honestly think and I hate I hate to be that guy because I'm starting to sound a lot like Scott Galloway that it's because he looks the part he looks like Michael Sarah Mark Zuckerberg and they and he talked of oh, oh oh I forgot let's not forget his wonderful uh, DMs on Twitter to the journalist where he talks about it's all bullshit and he has to say the right quote shibboleths to you know pull the wool over everybody's eyes effectively like he's just admitting it just straight up, yeah, it was all bull. It's almost braggadocious about it. I, I don't even understand. And this is just the iceberg. And yet Elizabeth Holmes is going to prison for over 11 years. This guy's probably not. Adam Newman got nothing, right? Actually, he made money. I don't know. Like, I, I, this is, I know I got a lot of crap for saying this before, but there's a difference between trying to actually do something and build something and ending up in a situation where you went over the line and did commit fraud than just being a straight up open fraud right literally i it it was a it was a scam from cradle to grave yes yeah Plus, at least we work and theranos tried right and i would argue that yeah you know if you can because remember, Elizabeth Holmes did not get convicted of anything to do, because that's what people will say, right? That's what they always say. Well, she could have hurt patients. It wasn't even charged with that, because there's no case there. It's, I mean, I think it should have been illegal, but it's not. From what I can see, this guy, he might only get indicted because he lost rich people money. He lost a bunch of VCs and hedge funds money. If he pulled an Adam Newman and they all got their money back, I think he does it again. You're talking about Sam. You think Sam? I'm talking about Sammy. Sammy. Uh, yeah. Sammy. To, Sammy uh, bank to fraud. Pass. Yeah. I. Yep. I wonder. You know, he gave something like uh, seventy mil to Democrats, and FTX gave something like thirty mil to Republicans. So they really greased a lot of pockets. Always a great choice. I feel like we've lost touch with the numbers on this story a little bit. I mean, the dollar amounts I just rattled off are unbelievable, right? Like they they could probably provide housing for homeless in some state somewhere in the country like it's an unbelievable amount of money we're talking about here oh yeah he was in congress right as the face of uh responsible crypto or whatever they yeah it's- so it seems like there's two routes one route you know he uh he gets some of the money back he gets a slap on the wrist and uh he goes out continues to do his thing basically kind of becomes some kind of weird gross celebrity route two is like your Maxine Waters and your other politicians who were photographed with Sam a lot may want to make an example out of him and show that they can't be bought and they may want to go hard. They may really go after him. I I doubt it because his parents are well-connected too, but it's a possible theory. Uh, But you're betting on he essentially just gets a slap on the wrist scenario. Well, so the, the most analogous case that we've had recently is uh, is Farmer Bro, who did something very similar to this, right? Took one money out of the profitable enterprise to cover his, what do you know, investment gambling debts, right? He had his little hedge fund bullshit too with his ex-partners. 
I mean, I said it at the time, and I still think it. If he had shut up and not like bought a Wu Tang Clan CD and not been so gleefully raising prices on insulin and other uh, life saving medications, he probably never would have been indicted. Right. So to me, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't have a good prediction. I think this is a test case for, again, to use a uh, Sammy Boy's phrasing. Are the Shibboleths going to protect him? I think they might. There's also the clear regulatory moat that he seemed to be attempting to build with this money. I think that's what this money was. With the Bahamas. Right. He's he's trying to say that being in the Bahamas is a shield. Well, and he was also, I mean, he was he's living in the Bahamas, working at the Bahamas, but he's spending like $60 million on politicians in the last year. And he's visiting with Gary of the SEC, the guy that runs the SEC. He's trying to build a regulatory moat that basically makes FTX the blessed crypto exchange of the regulated crypto industry. And that's why he was attacked. That's why all of this began. That's why his competitor leaked the balance sheet is because Sam was attempting to build a regulatory moat around him and his competition knew that uh, he had paper hands. And so they took their shot. And unfortunately it was a head, it was a headshot. And I don't think, I think they were going for like a leg shot and they instead got a headshot. And you know, that's it was this whole regulatory strategy that Sam was embarking on that triggered this whole fiasco. Well, reveal the whole fiasco. Right. He wanted he wanted to lock it. It's like Facebook's asking for regulation. Right. You want to stop anyone from challenging. The problem was, I mean, OK, devil's advocate. It might be true that this guy really didn't know just how horrible shape his business was in. Right. Like that's his defense. Well, it's very possible. Their books were crap. They were mixing funds. They were mixing business and customer funds in, in some just one large account. Well, he knew he knew he was doing that, though. So at that juncture, when you already know that you're you're doing that kind of co-mingling, how could you think things were going well? Like, I, I feel like you're right that the, the CZ dude did this on purpose, but I don't think anybody, he certainly, CZ certainly didn't know quite how bad things were over there, right? They had some data because... Uh, Binance, which CZ, CZ runs, was one of the largest inbound sources of funds to Alameda Research. The Alameda Research folks and FTX folks were moving funds between FTX, Alameda Research, and Binance. And Binance does have on-chain data that shows the amount of funds that are coming and going. So they probably had some indication that something was going on. Plus, they were an early investor in FTX, so they may have had access to financials that others did not have. Well, they did, right? Because then FTX tried to merge with them to save themselves. Yeah. And then they looked at the books and said, no. <laughs> looked at the books and were like, hell no. <laughs> yeah. uh, so so there is a, a silver lining, though. Mm. Uh, transparency on the blockchain to a comical level in this in this case. Just like watching the money flows on the chain. Yeah. If somebody was paying more attention before, they might have noticed it was going the wrong way. Nobody was paying attention. They were too busy just latching onto a narrative. And, you know, it's, to me, it's ironic that not to really hit this point too hard, but you've got, you've got Elon who builds, who, who's, who's made EVs popular again. He's single-handedly like dragging a hundred year old industry with him to switch to EVs. Now every car manufacturer is falling over themselves to build an EV. He's had a ton of success with SpaceX. It's a really remarkable company. And now he's going into Twitter and he's he's basically calling the herd for better or for worse. He's he's taking actual action and not just, you know, sitting on his hands. And he is personified as an absolute villain, as a monster. 
Uh, he has created huge debates in our chat rooms over the last couple of days just because everybody is so emotionally invested in every little thing he tweets. And it's he's become the absolute supervillain of so many people's actual life story right now. That's not even hyperbole. That's actually happening. And SBF was branded as a king, as a genius, as somebody who was going to bring crypto to the masses and be the next place you spend every dollar. A different kind of entrepreneur. Yep. Yep. And it turned out he was living a, you know, a life of lies and total total BS to top to bottom from the tokens to the business practices to the crap he was saying, you know, all the right. He said all the right things. He that. The shibboleths, baby. You really have to kind of stop and think about that for a moment. He manipulated the investment industry. He manipulated the crypto industry. He manipulated the press with his words. And everybody bought it. And look where it got us. I don't think that they buy it, right? I don't think that they buy it. They didn't even attempt to protect themselves or look. I mean... You know, I was thinking about that this morning. The New York Times wrote about him. Forbes wrote about him. The Wall Street Journal wrote about him. Um, and there's another one in there. Uh, I, I'm forgetting that he was on the cover of. There's a, a fourth magazine. And none of them could be bothered to just send one reporter to the office. I would imagine if a New York Times reporter walked through the office of FTX, it probably would have set off a few red flags. It probably would have suggested to them that perhaps they should look just underneath the surface. But they couldn't even be bothered to do the basic bit of journalism because they got the message they wanted. And I actually think this all feeds into Twitter. And I think it feeds into what so many dark matter developers are about to go through. And it's really going to hit hard in Q1, I think. Tailscale.com slash coder. That's where you go to get a free personal account for up to 20 devices. That's a great way to support the show. Tailscale is an easy-to-use, zero-config VPN. You get it loaded on your device, you authenticate it with your single sign-on provider, and then you're off to the races. It manages firewall rules, it takes care of your double nets. If you're on LTE, Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, where you just have a standard residential connection, or you're in a data center, it's going to make it all work seamlessly. Because devices actually connect to each other using WireGuard's noise protocol for encryption, and it builds out a mesh, flat VPN and it's the best in the business. And not only does it let you quickly and easily create and secure a network between your servers, your phone, your devices, your, I don't know, I use it on my VMs even. But Tailscale has been rolling out new features like Tailscale SSH, which is going to help manage the keys for you. And now they also have Tailscale Funnel, which using some really clever security can let you connect a machine to the internet. And there's more details on the Tailscale blog about that. It's one of the many features they've been rolling out recently, including some improved DNS support. When you're done, you have connections between all your machines. They have consistent IPs. That can, you can do name resolution now as well. It's how I keep all my family's computers connected. I had to work on my son's laptop. I use Tailscale to connect to it. I have it turned on on all of my VPSs, all my systems at home. <laughs> I love I, I am a I'm a Tailscale power user, and I really recommend it. I think you're going to love it. It's a great way to support the show while you try out something really great. So go try it for yourself for free for up to 20 machines by visiting tailscale.com slash coder. It's just so wonderful. Really, really great product. You're going to love it. Tailscale.com slash coder. I think we're witnessing, and Antonio Garcia put it 
probably more eloquently than I could, a professional management class warfare happening. Now, here's what Antonio tweeted, quote, what Elon is doing is a revolt by entrepreneurial capital against the professional managerial class regime that otherwise everywhere dominates, including and especially large tech companies. And that same PMC, again, PMC stands for professional managerial class. And that same PMC, which includes the media, is treating it like an act of, I guess, war. He uses, a fa he uses fancy uh, Frenchanese. So the point that he's making is that tech companies are filled with the modern, the modern elite middle class, the higher up middle class that doesn't really have any trade skills. They get their value by the work on the computer that they do. They sit in front of computers and some of those are developers and you can really argue that there's high quality value. It's essential for the product. And a lot of them are this professional management class. And I know you guys out there know this because every single tech company I've ever worked for as a contractor or as an employee has had way too many of these. And they're this middle management layer. And I have made the observation that it feels like our government is full of these people. And it feels like Google and Twitter are full of these people. Mike, did you know that when the news that Elon was thinking about buying Twitter was announced, the Twitter staff were so distraught that the company leadership announced a day of rest, and they basically end up having a day of rest during the week where nobody works, so that way people have time to emotionally recoup. What are we talking about here? What has happened with all of this mediocre crap leadership? And that's what FTX represented, too. There's no due diligence. The company doesn't survive by good leadership. It's just all bogus. And Twitter is loaded with this stuff. And what Elon is doing, and I've talked about it before, is he's moving fast and breaking things and everything's a test. When he sends out a deadline saying, have this done by the 7th, or he says, say yes to this or you're fired, he is trying to come up with excuses to fire people. He's looking for reasons to let people go. They're getting severances. He's looking for reasons. Yeah, that's super clear, right? He well, first of all, as a talk of seven five one, sounds like he might be, uh, you know, FSB over there. Um, joking, it says in the chat, what the hell were all those people doing? You know, the thousands of Twitter employees. You tell me, right? I mean, I think I know. You've you've really benefited because you've been, you know, you've been working on your own for a long time. But I know you interface with these companies. You must see this sometimes. Just these, all these people that are doing nothing. I, I'm, this is a real story, but just a quick aside, a real story. I worked at a bank that kind of had like this management takeover uh, by ex-employees from another local bank. And they brought in all of their own cronies. And um, the CTO brought in like the chief guy underneath him. His number is like his, his number one, his Riker. His name was Harry. And Harry did two things. I sat right next to Harry. I shared a cubicle with Harry. And Harry did two things. Well, actually three things. He went to meetings and he would go to really long meetings and then he would come back to his desk and he would, and I'm not exaggerating, he would spend every, every minute that he wasn't in a meeting, either inside Outlook, rearranging his calendar or sending a few emails or going out and having a smoke and a coffee. And that's all Harry did 
And Harry probably made $300,000. I know there's folks out there that are working like two jobs right now, and they're still only putting in like 20, 25 hours a week because there's just not a lot of work for them. And so they're working remote. There's not, and they're getting the work done that's, re- that's expected of them. They're making great money and they got time to take on a side hustle. Either, even combines 25, 30 hours. I'm not, I, I have a very specific person and, you know, it works for them. But that also means that that company probably doesn't really have enough work for them. And we see this in so many places. And it, it's easy to do when the money is easy and free flowing and balance sheets are looking great. But it has to change when we tighten and we raise rates and money is scarce. Just has to change. And you have SBF and FTX as the example of the worst version of what the loose money and crappy managerial class has done. That's on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have Elon and what he's doing at Twitter. And we are literally at the same freaking time watching two of the most extreme examples go down. And I got to say, if I was going to pick one side, I actually think what's going on at Twitter is probably more reasonable. Now, I think you could argue, with, you know, you, everybody can have their own position on the moderation stuff, which everybody's been freaking out. This whole weekend, Mike, this whole weekend, everybody was, was screaming that Twitter was going to crash and that it was going to go down over the weekend. And people were screaming, like just screaming about it. Like, I couldn't believe it. Just absolute rage quits, exclamation marks, all capital letters. And, and it wasn't just, just people. It was like professional news organizations. In light of the uncertainty around Twitter and out of an abundance of caution, CBS News is pausing its activity on the social media site as it continues to monitor the platform, Major. Jonathan Vigliotti, thank you. Like what? Uh, Phil Schiller deleted his Twitter account from Apple. CBS is back on Twitter now. It took him about two days. But it's the, the absolute freakout that's happening is really remarkable. Because if you were to go back in time just a few weeks ago, you know, make it easy, 30 days ago, these same people that are freaking out about Elon and the future of Twitter are the same people that was telling you SBF is the future of crypto and the crypto king and the next Warren Buffett. The same exact people that are freaking out about what's happening at Twitter are the same type of people that were all in on SBF. Now, come on. It's possible for them just to have other biases that make them make silly decisions, right? I guess when I think about how bad we blew the SBF stuff and how bad things have gotten out there, and then to see just the absolute panic over, I got to me, it's just like pop the popcorn. Let's see what happens. People are leaving for Mastodon if they don't like it. I think that's great, actually. I think that's a great thing. Getting more people off of a centralized platform is probably a good thing. I mean, I kind of feel like it's the old put a cop behind someone for 50 miles till eventually get a ticket kind of thing. If, if you're just investigating and investigating and investigating and every reporter in the world and it doesn't help, you know, that every night you decide to get loaded and go on Twitter and say crazy things, uh, Elon, you're eventually going to have a problem. And the difference is not only was SPF not being investigated, he was effectively having a police escort, right? Now to the regulatory moat on Twitter side, Twitter's former um, chief of moderation, I don't know what her, what her name was, but uh, she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and outlined how Apple and Google could stop Elon and Twitter. Um, she basically outlines, and Mark Gurman wrote a similar piece, that an unmoderated Twitter is going to be the same grounds that Apple and Google used to poll Parler. And they set a precedence with Parler. 
And then she goes on to say that if that doesn't work, regulators have, quote, significant tools at their disposal to enforce their will on Twitter and Mr. Musk. I'm going to link to the article because it is a nice little overview of the machinery that works to lock in a moat around regulation or works to suppress a business. It basically just calls for Apple and Google to use their app store powers to ban the Twitter app. I don't think that's realistic, right? Like I've also been watching this stuff on Twitter and I'm seeing a lot of definitely overheated takes, right? And downright crazy. Uh, I don't even know how to say it nicely. Like bad crazy opinions. It's important, I think, emotionally to a lot of tech and maybe media folks because we all tend to live there. But like, try it. Try to only check Twitter three times a day. Yeah. Or <laughs> how about once a day? Or one, right? Like, it, it, and I was the biggest Twitter addict. You know what? You know why I don't like Twitter? I'll tell you why. Because when I go on Twitter, I see people that I know and like that I haven't seen in a long time, or maybe I do see them all the time. I can think of at least five guys right now who are the biggest jackasses when they're on Twitter, like complete jerks. Um, and you would never, if that was your first introduction, you would never want to speak to these people. But get them in a normal situation, even with someone they might vehemently disagree with, right? They're normal, rational people. So I don't know. I, I, maybe it's a. I, it's been a long journey for me, but I, I think the Twitter stuff you got to cut back. Like post positive things if you're going to post post fun things, but don't. Uh, I just don't think it matters. Maybe don't take it so seriously. And you got to remember, don't it's, take it's, it so seriously. It's a tiny, tiny, small fraction of society that's actually on there. Right. Twitter, Twitter is in lots of ways, not the country or the world in so many ways, Mike, in so many ways. It's yeah, I, I think, in fact, Twitter as a platform itself is not that interesting. What's happening to Twitter as a business and the two extremes that we see on both ends of the spectrum. I find that kind of interesting. Well, but it's also like people take to Twitter when they're at their worst. Right. No, no one. If someone's having a good time with their family and friends or their colleagues, they're probably not like tweeting. Unless they're just bored or, or me and waiting for Xcode to freaking compile Swift. Damn it. But other than those cases, I, I put it this way. Think about Twitter. Has anybody ever changed your mind on Twitter? You know where Twitter is good? The only time I really think Twitter is really great is when something, a live event or some breaking thing is happening. And, you know, like you can find out about it first on Twitter, but. Also, it's fun, like during some major television event or something, just to, or maybe an Apple event or a Google event to see people's reactions. It's good in those moments. And outside of that, not so good. It could be good for, uh, could be good for Google and Apple, though, if they decide to keep the apps, because Twitter is currently trending towards 250 million daily active users. And uh, German writes that if you assume that 1% of that user base, so 2.5 million people, subscribe on either iOS or Android, and excluding any other additional subscription products that Twitter might offer. Just the base $8 a month blue, if 1% of the user base subscribes, uh, would be $72 million in annual revenue for Apple and $36 million for Google, because Google already has a 15% cut and Apple's is 30%. Because Google's like money. Because money. Yeah, so it's pretty big, you know, pretty big money for them. I mean, it's not huge. They've kicked out things like Fortnite, which brought in $100 million. So, I mean, they've, you know, it's not going to make or break Apple. But if, if Twitter Blue is successful, 
their cut's going to be noteworthy. It's going to be a good little tick up on the app store revenue, on the services revenue when they need it right now. So I don't know if they can kick them out. We'll see. All right. I think we got it out of our system. You know, we, I think we really, the, the reality is this is what's dominating the tech cycle right now. It truly is what's dominating it. Uh, but you can, you can always boost in a story or a link or email us at coder.show slash contact for something you'd like to hear us talk about. You can save us from ourselves, yes. The feedback is a big part of the show. We got some great feedback today. We also, we did get some great boosts today too. So let's do a couple of those and then we'll get out of here. We'll get, get, get out of here. Boostagram. We got 10,000 sats from Anonymous says the big tech companies are already working on the passwordless future with multi-device web auth keys that sync via Apple or Microsoft or your Google account. The backup will be a device notification and or phone numbers. Most of it will be single-factor login with your fingerprint or face and no two-factor. This is the main reason Windows 11 requires a TPM chip for Windows Hello. And at the end of the day, it will be tied to your cryptographic decentralized identity, your DID, your DID, maybe even your government CBDC wallet. Oh, I bet it will be. Won't that be fantastic? Have you seen these decentralized identities that the web standards group is working on the dids yeah yeah i need to i do i need yeah. to know more about it i gotta get a more educated opinion i i'm super skeptical i just see so many potential vulnerabilities yeah i use a couple of services that use a similar principle right now and the onus is on me in that scenario to like back up all my identity information so if i like try from a new browser or i clear my cookies i can come back and re-identify myself but it's not like a username it's well, so it is a username tied to a hash, which has been randomly generated. Anyways, I get it, but it just seems, it basically seems like you're bringing the traceability of your ID to basically like the traceability of Bitcoin. It's like, you're going to have, it might not be your exact name, but it's going to be an identifiable ID that with enough data points, people could tie back to you. I'm not sure, but I, you know what? I'd also would appreciate anybody else's opinion. Maybe somebody else has a, a better take. M -m 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 Mississippi Mayhem boosted in with 7,000 sats. Coming in hot with the boost. <laughs> I'm happy to see some go love. He's talking about that NSA report that uh, we talked about last week. Spooks love go, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says, I really do see it as better than Rust. Oh, over the past few years, Go has replaced both Python and PHP in projects where I have the choice. Definitely worth the effort to learn. It's almost as friendly as Python and almost as fast as C++. I mean, once you factor in real world bottlenecks. Better than Rust. There you go. There is a hot take. Uh, HPC Morgan boosted in with a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. It's my first row of ducks. I was wondering what you two would suggest for an HPC, that's high performance computing, sysadmin, who is looking to transition into a software dev career. Coming into about five years as a sysadmin now. I went to school, though, for InfoSec. When I was greener, I got to do more coding. But now that I am a lead admin on multiple clusters, I have to pawn that kind of work off. But I really miss it and want to go full-time coding in the future. Interesting. So he's a HPC sysadmin. He's got a formal training in InfoSec. Right. I wonder if there is a crossover between some sort of development work in the InfoSec world. There's got to be. There's got to be something there. Hardening systems, taking that NSA report to tell people to rewrite their stuff. Seems like something you could try. Half joking. Writing tools or Metasploit scripts. I mean, the only reason why I go that direction is, I mean, I am a big fan of a generalist who, uh, you know, kind of a jack of all trades. Those people can be a wealth of knowledge. 
But when you're looking at the employment market, I think somebody would look at that and go, that's pretty spread out. You know, you got several different things here. So even if, even if you didn't think it was a long-term thing, if you could kind of tie it all together a little bit to kind of, to kind of build a uniform story there. And the reason why I bring that up is then you could think about projects and what you could work on and what you could learn in that space to help kind of create a bit of a back of a brand for yourself in a, in a way. That'd be my, my advice. But uh, if you have anything specific, HPC Morgan, send us your next boost. We'd love to answer it. Okay. We uh, got a 5,000 sat boost from Wise Papa John. Pew! Not sure if it's available on iOS, but Authy is a two-factor app that supports syncing with a phone number and password. It's non-GPL as far as I know, but for the normies, it's better than losing everything. Yeah, I'll plus one Authy for the normies for sure. I think the key thing with Authy that really makes it work is before you wipe your old device, <laughs> you get Authy set up on your new device and make sure everything syncs over. I think that's, that's really the trick. <laughs> Not saying that uh, I know from experience or anything. TrevDev boosts in with 2,000 sats. Oh, two-factor is not too strict. If you followed the directions every time you activate it, you get fallback codes. You were warned. You were all warned. But sorry, you got burned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just, again. Sure, but let's be honest. I think your point was regular users, right? Like, yeah, maybe, maybe Mike, the developer, should have done better. But he's a busy guy. Right. I could, I could have sucked less, sure but I didn't. And I'm pretty sure that lots of other people will suck just as much. I think I could almost think it could be a guaranteed thing. <laughs> it, it seems super likely to me. Todd boosted him with 31,415 sats, which, yep, you guessed it. B-O-O-S-T. That's a pie boost. That's a pie boost. Thanks, Todd. And then John A. finishes it off with 10,000 sats. <laughs> Camel case is the way. Thank you, John. Nice to see you. John was in the studio yesterday for Linux Unplugged as I record. He brought us uh, some beverages, which I'm still recovering from. I'm an old man. I had way too much champagne. (laughs) It also was like a two-hour Linux Unplugged, you know? (laughs) just too. uh, But we had a great time, and John was a good guy, and we hung out for a bit after the show and had a good conversation. So thanks for the boost, John. If you'd like to send us a boost, go grab a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. You go get one of them uh, Boostagram-compatible ones and load it up with some sats, which are cheap, super cheap, probably going to be cheap for a while, too. So my advice would, you know, buy like 10 bucks worth, play around with it. Just see it. Just play around with it because they're cheap right now. It's a good time. Load them in a podcasting 2.0 app and send your message in or become a member at coderqa.co. We have a new Coderly recorded. I will either get it posted shortly after this episode or shortly before this episode hits the main feed. So if you become a member, you get access to this Coderly. I think it was a banger. You know, if you know, you had your survey, we have the clips, we have the hot takes. Oh, yeah. Even Drew said it was a good one, you know, and he doesn't fluff. Yeah, no. Yeah. So loving it. You can get access to all the Coderlys and the new one, all of them we've ever done when you become a Coderly supporter. No, something else. I don't know. You become a member at CoderQA.co. It's a thing you can do. I take these words and I, I make them with the mouth, and sometimes it's hard because Coder and Coderly, and Quarterly are all very similar. And what we did is we went and made something that is hard for me to say, but it is a Coderly Quarterly. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you want to send the people? Uh, at Dumanuku on Twitter, or you know, while well, that's still a thing. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, why not? Sure. Um, I'm over there, I guess. Uh, sure. At Chris LES. Sure. Why not? 
Coda Radio Show, at Coda Radio Show. You know, better place, the Fediverse. This show is being streamed to the Fediverse right now over at Jupiter.tube. Yep, we're in the Fediverse. It's pretty cool. Jupiter.tube, you can follow us with your Fediverse account. And uh, we go live on Mondays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. And you can stream and help us title the show. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. See how it's made. Maybe you don't want to do that. Just download it. Coda.show slash subscribe. That's way better, actually. I would do that. I would definitely do that. Then you get Drew's nice touches, too. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Coda Radio program. We'll see you right back here next week.